I'm going to begin today by reading you a selection of verses from the New Testament, okay? Here you go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's a pretty great set of verses, isn't it? Very comforting to know these. Now, I'm going to read a second selection. All these verses are going to be from the Old Testament, okay? Leviticus 29. Anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Another passage. In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. See now that I, even I, this is God speaking, that I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. What do you think of that set of verses? Not so nice and rosy, eh? Do these verses bother you? When we compare these two sets of verses, there seems to be some kind of disconnect, right? These verses don't seem to be describing the same God, do they? Sure seems that way. On the one hand, we have this God of love and mercy and grace and kindness. And on the other, we have a God of wrath and violence and vengeance and anger. In contrasting passages like these, especially those about God's wrath, do bother plenty of people, and they can be quite an obstacle to our faith in some people's minds. Some end up trying to separate the two. They try to separate Jesus and his love and the love of God in the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament and say that they were different, saying, I follow Jesus and wholeheartedly, but I can't follow whoever the God was in the Old Testament. God of the Jews. Can't do it. Some are much more harsh and antagonistic 
and their opinions and really accusations. The well-known atheist Richard Dawkins calls God a moral monster. And he says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, statomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. How do we respond to that? Is that the God that we claim to worship? Well, I don't think that Dawkins could be further from the truth with his blasphemous charge. And he will answer to God for it. I'd be happy to direct you to some excellent responses to him in particular. But the issue that he raises, the issue of God's wrath, cannot be avoided. It leads to all kinds of questions in our minds. Are the gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament different deities? How could a God of love use such violence at times in scriptures? What do we make of the seemingly harsh punishments for crimes in the Old Testament? Why did God allow or command his people to use violence in the Old Testament? Is God pettily jealous or, or angry or racist or capricious? Did God use or approve of genocide? or ethnic cleansing in the Old Testament. Here's the main question we're going to look at today. How do we reconcile God's love and his wrath? Can we? Can we reconcile these? We don't often understand how these two can reasonably go together. And this is actually a question that I hoped wouldn't be asked for this series, because I I knew it would be challenging. But it's probably good that it was asked, because... This is a legitimate question for many people, likely including many of you. How do we make God's love and his wrath reconcile? We'll be jumping all over scripture together to find some answers. And I'll have you turn to some passages with me. Others will be on the screen for you to read. I'll also be quoting a number of other people, scholars who have done, who have deeply studied this issue. And I think that their wisdom will help, will greatly help us understand these difficult passages. But more than their help, I believe we most need God's help as we address this issue today. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we're confused by this topic. We don't know what to make of it. And so we plead for your wisdom, for your grace in helping us. I pray that your spirit would come and be working in our hearts and our minds and, help, and opening our eyes to the scriptures and to see, what, or to see who you really are and what your scriptures have to say for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible tells us that God made man in his image. But some naturalists who refuse to believe in God or the supernatural claim that God didn't create man but that instead, we humans created God in our image. We made up and designed gods to be like us, which with, with whatever attributes we liked at the time. 
Now, of course, we don't believe in their naturalistic premise. We don't believe like Richard Dawkins does that it's fiction. We believe that God does exist and the supernatural does exist, and we believe that God did create us. But I wonder sometimes if, if they aren't too far from the truth, at least practically speaking. We may not create God, but we do tend to make up our own versions of him. We emphasize certain parts of his character to the neglect of others. We make God fit our desires and our, our expectations for who we think God should be. This is probably most of it, I think, when it comes to this topic of God's wrath. We love God's love. And rightfully so. It is wonderful and incredible and enjoyable. But on the other hand, we don't like God's wrath. It's not so nice and pretty. And it can be pretty brutal and ugly. And so we tend to at least ignore it. Or even pretend like it doesn't exist. We say that we have a God of great love. But never of wrath. Or judgment. But a God of love and not of wrath is a human made false idol. Okay? It is not the God of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. Our God is a God of great, gracious, astonishing love. And it's not wrong to pump that up at all. We should celebrate it but we shouldn't ignore the rest of who he is. It's to our detriment. I'm going to give you a few points today, and here's the main crucially important thing I want you to understand today from Scripture. And that is this, that God is a God of merciful love and holy wrath at the same time. God is simultaneously a God of merciful love and holy wrath. In order to see this, you have to look no further than some of the verses I quoted you earlier. First John 4, 8 said, God is love. So God defines the essence of love. On the other hand, Nahum 1, 6 said that God is avenging and wrathful. Now, you might think that that only reiterates this difference we're talking about between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it doesn't prove that he is both at the same time, that these are the same God. Well, the idea... Uh, that God is full of wrath in the Old Testament and full of love in the New Testament is actually very inaccurate. It is a misleading caricature and it ignores so much of the Bible. The truth is that God is both. He is loving and wrathful in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. As Romans 11.22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. In the Old Testament, I'll give you some verses here. God is constantly described in the Old Testament as loving and merciful. In the most frequent description of God in the Old Testament, by far, God is described as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That was God's self-description of himself. And it was repeated again and again and again. Psalm 36 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
I'll invite you to turn with me to Psalm 103, which we read a chunk of earlier. Psalm 103, if you have a pew Bible from in front of you, it's on page 502. The whole psalm is about God's love. But focus Psalm 103 and starting in verse 11. We read some of this. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for what? For his steadfast love endures forever. And it repeats that over and over and over again. The prophet Micah said, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Conversely, in the New Testament, God is described many times as having a holy wrath. Romans 1.18, which we've read several times over the last couple weeks, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Colossians 3.6 says, On account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. Revelation 14 So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest. Speaking of people here, okay? He gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles. Now, you also can't start thinking that Jesus is all gentle, meek, and mild. Almost all of our vivid descriptions of hell come from Jesus. Jesus' return is described this way in 2 Thessalonians. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. I want you to see this last picture for yourself of Jesus in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 in the Pew Bibles is page 1040. Revelation 19. Jesus comes to return to earth. And in verse 11 it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Skip down to verse 15. It continues, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When you read scripture as a whole, and you study all of what the Bible says, not ignoring or de-emphasizing parts that we might not like, you have to come to the conclusion that God is both full of love and full of wrath. So why do we tend to focus on love and forget wrath? 
Why do we do that? D.A. Carson has a theory, which I'm going to read to you from his book, Scandalous. This is a longer quote, okay? So follow along with me on the screen. He says this, and now D.A. Carson uh, has the older pronunciation of wrath, so you can imagine him saying wrath, okay? But (laughs) he says this, I suspect that the reason we even think that God is a softer, gentler, kinder God in the New Testament, even for a moment, is that the Old Testament pictures of God's wrath are temporal, expressed primarily in historical terms. In the New Testament, the pictures of God's wrath are primarily, though not exclusively, in final eschatological and apocalyptic terms. And most of us do not really believe the latter, so we are not frightened of them. Our culture is so present-oriented that we filter out depictions of final judgment. We are not frightened of hell. We are far more frightened of war, old age, sickness, disease, and bankruptcy. We are more frightened of temporal judgments than final judgment. We skirt through the pictures of judgment in the New Testament with the result that they do not bother us much. But when it comes to plague or pestilence and war, then we are scared witless. This says much about our focus on this present life. The move from the Old Testament to the New Testament is not a move from a wrathful God to a loving God. Rather, the New Testament ratchets up both themes. The depictions of both God's wrath and God's love are ratcheted up in intensity in the New Testament documents. The cross spectacularly displays God's love, but also displays God's wrath against sin. It massively underscores God's condemnation of sin. You might wonder, how is this possible for God to be both loving and wrathful at the same time? Aren't they opposites? Don't they contradict each other? Well, no, actually, they don't. Take, for example, take parents and the way they feel about their kids. If you're a parent here, do you ever get upset with your kids? Yes, right? Of course you do. If you, if you don't have kids or you still live at home, do your parents ever get upset with you? Yes, of course. Parents get upset when their kids disobey them, when they hurt someone else, or when they hurt them. Now, do you still love your kids? Of course you do. Of course you love your kids. And kids, do your parents still love you? may not feel like they do, but they do. Deeply. It's actually because you love them that you care enough to get upset. True love corrects and disciplines and guides and punishes. On a much grander scale and a perfect scale, none of us are perfect as parents, so we always sin when we do this. But God is perfect and he never does. And God's love and wrath are like a parent's love and wrath. Even his wrath shows us that he loves us. Jonathan Dodson says, God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer eating the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. 
God loves us and has our best interests in mind, but we will only experience God's best when we live in full obedience to him and worship him alone. And so when we sin and we, first of all, hurt our Heavenly Father, we hurt ourselves, we hurt those around us, God reacts with wrath. Not only is it possible to be both loving and wrathful at the same time. I would say it is necessary. It's necessary for God to be truly holy, and it's necessary for God to be truly loving. Mark Driscoll says this, that love requires wrath. You can't love holiness without hating sin or love life without hating death. You might think, well, I can understand, this is pretty obvious from Scripture, that God is both loving and wrathful. But there seems to still be a disconnect here because of the severity of God's wrath. Why can't God just discipline people instead of, say, destroying them or even damning them? Why can't God do that? Why can't his wrath be shown in a more loving and merciful way? In answer, it was. Behold the cross. It was shown in a much more loving and merciful way. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. We've got to start today by recognizing two overarching truths. One about his wrath, the other about his love. Okay, so the second point, God's holy wrath shows his deep abhorrence of sin. God's wrath shows his absolute hatred, his detestation or abhorrence for sin. Is God's wrath cruel? Sometimes it can seem that way when he judges people. But I would respond by saying that it's only cruel... If it's undeserved. If it is actually, truly, entirely deserved, then there's no way it could ever be considered cruel. I think that underlying all of our questions about this topic is an inherent assumption that we make. And we assume that our sins aren't that bad. We assume that. We can't understand how God's punishment fits our crime. But that's only because we don't understand the seriousness of sin. I firmly believe that we only begin to question God's judgment when we doubt the severity of sin. I firmly believe that. Clay Jones says this, We do not appreciate the depths of our own depravity, the horror of sin, and the righteousness of God. Consequently, it is no surprise that when we see God's judgment upon those who committed the sins we commit, that complaints and protest arises within our hearts. Get what he's saying? It's only when we doubt the severity of sin that we question God's judgment. Understand this. Sin is is not petty or innocent in any way. God is holy, and sin is first and foremost against him. It's a crime against our creator. 
Sin is cosmic treason. It is spiritual adultery. Selfish idolatry. Wicked betrayal. Evil rebellion. And sin displaces God from his rightful place of authority, worship, and love in our lives. At its root, sin is us trying to tell God, I'm going to be God. God, in his holiness, rightfully hates that sin. He despises it. Sin is a horrible, tragic, offensive, odious affront and abomination to God. Further, it is not just murder and rape and adultery that earn God's wrath. Our pride and our greed and our lust and our gossip and our lying and our hatred and our disobedience are equally damning. Romans 6.23 says that all sin justly deserves death. Yours and mine. I think there's two main issues in the Old Testament that we're going to need to address today in more detail. One is the law and its punishments, and the other is God's apparent genocide. And these are two issues that raise questions over and over and over again. So first, we'll we'll talk about the law for a little bit. The Mosaic Law demands capital punishment for 17 different crimes. Okay, so 17 different crimes demanded capital punishment. One of them we read earlier. It also includes instructions for some physical punishment, such as giving lashes, a maximum of, of 40 lashes. And then we come along and we read these laws in the Old Testament and we balk a bit. And we wonder, how could God prescribe such barbaric practices? Things like stoning or lashing. How could he do that? But as soon as we complain about barbarism, we betray our culture and our time. Remember, God spoke his word into specific cultures and specific times. And stoning or receiving lashes were legitimate legal penalties in the ancient Near East culture. Time and time again, they were not considered barbaric at all. It's only barbaric in our overly sensitized 21st century mind. Besides, if you take the time to study other nations' law codes from the time, other ancient Near Eastern countries, you quickly realize how different God's law was from theirs. It was night and day. Compared with the Egyptian or the Hittite or other ancient Near Eastern law codes, it was revolutionary. These cultures all demanded much, much more severe and barbaric punishments, such as cutting off hands or feet, emasculation, up to 200 lashes, which would usually kill someone. God's law made significant moral improvements on the norm of the day. Basically, he met his people halfway. And in that note, we have to remember that God's law was only meant as a temporary ethic. It was only supposed to be temporary. It wasn't meant to be permanent or a universal ideal for everyone for all time. The fact is that it was unideal. It was temporary law that would be fulfilled... By Christ. It's meant for only a certain time. We still may ask questions though. Well, couldn't God have meted out his justice in a less violent way? And the answer is, sure he could have. If that's what he wanted to do. 
But given what we just talked about, about the actual severity of sin, God also could have rightfully meted out justice in a way that was much more violent. It would have been his right. He could have justly demanded the death penalty for much more than just 17 crimes. He could have demanded it for all 613. And yet he mercifully didn't. See, giving and taking life are God's prerogatives. And thankfully, he shows both mercy and justice. Let's jump ahead a bit to God's alleged genocide or ethnic cleansing. These charges stem from God's commands to the Israelites to militarily wipe out the Canaanites. For instance, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20, it's on page 163. Deuteronomy 20. Starting in verse 16. God says this, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. There are a couple other instances of this type of command, very similar in nature. And at first glance, these commands do seem to be genocidal. So what gives? Well, there aren't any easy or pat answers to this type of difficulty, but there are several very important things we have to note. In addition to what we already saw about the severity of sin. First of all, God's wrath is always judgment. We sometimes think that the Canaanites just happen to be in the way of the Israelites. So God, in displacing the Canaanites, was showing racism by just shoving them aside and letting his people come into the land. But the truth of the situation was way more nuanced than this. Yes, his prescribed judgment coincided with the exact time his people needed a land. And so you can say that God killed two birds with one stone, so to speak. But... This did not show ethnic cleansing. It showed an intricate plan of God's. It showed God's justice to the Canaanites and his mercy to the Israelites at the same time. Once again, his love and his wrath. The clear truth of the Bible is that God did not remove the Canaanites just to give Israel the land. He removed the Canaanites because they were desperately wicked and deserving of judgment. The Bible often talks about nations or people sinning until they are ripe for judgment, like if they were a fruit or a grain ready to be harvested. Okay? So God is patient, but he says he allow he's patient with them, allows the sin to keep going until they reach a certain point of no return when they are ripe for judgment. Back in Genesis, around the time that Sodom and Gomorrah were ripe for judgment, God said in Genesis 15, 16 that he wasn't going to judge the rest of Canaan yet. He waited because, he said, their iniquity was not yet complete. But by the time Israel came to possess the land, 
They were very ripe for judgment. Turn to Deuteronomy 9, just a few pages back. Very key passage in this. Deuteronomy 9, in verse 4, says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. (laughs) Very clear. He did not give it just because the Israelites were good. He gave it because the others were wicked. And so he was bringing judgment. This shows another reason that this definitely shouldn't be considered ethnic cleansing. Because God held Israel to the exact same standard. There was no double standard here. If God warned them that they would face the exact standard, same judgment as the Canaanites were facing if they didn't stay faithful to him as well. He wasn't playing favorites here. Paul Copin says that God was concerned with sin, not ethnicity. If we read carefully, it's obvious God was opposed to Israel's sin just as much as he was to that of their oppressors. For example, Leviticus 18, 26-28 says, "...but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations." For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. You might wonder, were the Canaanites really that bad? Were they really that bad? The short answer is yes. Just an abbreviated list. And then when I studied this, lists were long of what the Canaanites were into. And this is in scripture and in history. They were into temple sex, approved adultery, religious orgies, bestiality, incest, pederasty, witchcraft, and child sacrifice. Kids up to age four were burned to death by the thousands. To keep this PG not going to go into depth on these unthinkable practices. I'll just say this, that as I studied it this week, I literally felt like vomiting. Just like God said here that the land did, that the land actually vomited them out because of their evil. I believe that if Canaan was a nation in our world today and we knew what was going on, we would be protesting in horror. Where is God? Why is he not judging evil? You see the double standard that we're holding God to? We don't want him to be too harsh. But we do want justice. We demand justice. Thankfully, We can trust God in his justice. That's another key point we have to remember, that God's wrath is always judgment, and God's judgments are always just.
When God says that the Canaanite people deserved judgment, do we believe him? Justin Taylor says, It is commonplace in our culture to ask whether this or that was fair or just for God to do. But if you stop to think about it, the question itself is actually illegitimate. Merely asking it presupposes that we are the judge. We will put God in the dock and examine him. God must conform to our sense of fairness and rightness and justice. If God passes a test, well and good. But if he doesn't, we'll be upset and become the accuser. Perish the thought. God's wrath is judgment, but his judgments are always just. Also, only God determines judgment. What do I mean by this? Paul Copen asks, what guidelines do we have to determine when a culture is irredeemable, beyond the point of moral and spiritual return? Don't we need something more than mere mortals to assess a culture's ripeness for judgment? Aren't these considerations too weighty for humans to judge? Yes, they are. Any such determination should be left up to God, only God, namely through special revelation. In Scripture, only God was allowed to say when and how someone was to be judged. Outside of self-defense, Israel wasn't even allowed to go to war without God's special approval. God also outlawed the conquering of specific nations around them. Land grabbing was not okay. Copen goes on to say, without God's explicit command and thus his morally sufficient reasons, attacking the Canaanites would not have been justified. We see time and time again, this, is, this principle is illustrated very easily by seeing whenever Israel went to war without God's specific approval, they always lost resoundingly. They were routed disastrously. They needed God's approval. Greg Kukul says, this was not a carte blanche for genocide or ethnic cleansing, but rather a directive limited in time to the conquest, limited in scope to the Canaanites, and limited in location to the promised land. So basically, the Israelites were used as God's agents for judgment. But God was the one that was doing the judging. These passages should never justify or never be used to justify violence or wars. Because we should never act as agents of God's judgment without him telling us to. Only he knows. Only he determines it. God's holiness really shines forth in these passages. Not only did he need to judge the evil, but he wanted to keep his people that were coming in pure from corruption. And we learn from that that God earnestly desires holiness. And you notice that back in Deuteronomy 20, what it said? Why did God say to wipe out the Canaanites? He said, you shall devote them to complete destruction, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. He had his people's purity of mind. Unfortunately, the Israelites did not obey God completely. And they left some inhabitants in the land. And in the years that followed, they kept getting ensnared by this idolatry over and over and over again. Judges 3, 
for example, says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and many other ites. (laughs) And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah, which were Canaanite gods. Now probably the most emotionally charged part of this question is, what about the innocent civilians? What about the women and the children and the elderly? Well, innocent is a funny word. Because no one is truly innocent. The women and the elderly absolutely would have participated in Canaan's evil. We know this. As for the children, it the best answer is we don't know. We don't know. Some scholars adamantly and persuasively argue that the innocent people were never targeted. And that as the conquest came in, only military strongholds and personnel were attacked. They say that the young and old talked in scripture, or the men, women, and children, or everything that breathes, were just ancient Near Eastern stereotypes. They were stereotypical language used to describe all living people there, whether or not there were any women or children There's good reason to think that the Bible uses some exaggerated military language. And many times in this, it fits the genre. Plus, if you think about it, think about any story or book or movie where a big army comes and invades. What is the first thing that people do that are being invaded? They send the innocent people away, right? Get the women and children out. Make them flee. And the Bible often describes a conquest as driving people out of the land. It's frequently said that. So it would make some sense if all that were left in the cities were soldiers, were combatants left to fight. Now, even if these arguments might not be totally convincing, they're certainly possible. So it should help us here. Kukul adds this to the discussion. And this is an important point to realize. He says, when a community sins, there are consequences for every member of the population, even children. When Israel did evil and God brought famine and drought, adults and children suffered alike. Every act of corporate judgment sustains collateral damage. And what this speaks to is it speaks to the sad fact that our sins affect everyone around us. If I sin, for instance, it can often bear consequences for my family members. My kids and grandkids may suffer for my sins in the years ahead. They will never be punished for those sins, but they may suffer ramifications. We don't know for certain, whether the Canaanite children suffered or not. But even if they did, we can take heart in the belief that God saves innocent children. He has a huge heart for them in Scripture. So if these children did die and were taken to heaven, they're not suffering anymore. And they're not facing the vile, vile culture they are in. Again, this really 
this issue comes down to how much we trust God to do what is just and right. Do we? Do we actually trust him that he did what was right? I hope we do. Final thing on genocide that we have to remember is this, that even in God's wrath, his love shines through in the form of patience. See, God always held out for repentance. He always held out for repentance. And God can wait a long time. One of the great examples of this is the way that Rahab and her family were saved from Jericho. They repented, they turned to God, and God reached out and saved them. Noah preached repentance for 120 years before God finally sent the flood. Jonah preached to Nineveh. Nineveh repented. What did God do? Spared them. Spared them his wrath. If anyone turned back to God, God would gladly save them. But this just speaks to our human nature. Most don't. And the Canaanites did know better. They saw God's creation around them. They had consciences. But also Joshua 2 is clear that they knew what God was doing for the Israelites as they were coming to the land. Reports of the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan River crossing had made headline news in Canaan. People were terrified. They knew this God was coming. They knew this God was real and powerful. And yet out of all of them, only Rahab repented. Where we have to end this message on God's wrath is remembering God's love. His patience vividly showed his love. His mercy showed his love. And his grace showed his love. And God's merciful love shows his deep affection for people. Affection isn't really a strong enough word. That's why I said deep affection. God's merciful love shows his deep affection, faithfulness, and care for his people. You said earlier that God earnestly desires holiness, that he is jealous for people's worship and love. But sometimes people are bothered by the fact that God is described as jealous. We don't really understand. God's jealousy is actually an aspect of his love. See, there is a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. Copen says that it's bad to protect the petty. It is good to fiercely guard the precious. And as we've seen today, sin is never petty. Holiness is precious. Worship is is precious. People's souls are precious. And God is frequently pictured in Scripture as a jealous lover. A jealous lover. God and his people in Scripture made covenants to love each other. God promised to unconditionally love his people, and his people shall, yes, we will love you back. Covenanted with him. Much like a marriage, how a husband and a wife vow to love each other. And so, idolatry was appropriately seen as spiritual adultery. People rebelling against God was like him finding his wife sleeping with another man. 
and you're telling me he's not supposed to be jealous? Read the graphic illustrations of Israel's sin in Ezekiel 16 and 23 sometime. It'll open your eyes to how wicked our sin is, but how amazingly God keeps loving in the midst and trying to call people back to him. God loved his people and thus was intensely jealous for their affections. And even in the face of this spiritual adultery, God actively tried to woo his people back to him. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. This is on page 705 in the Pew Bibles. Ezekiel 18. Look at what God said through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verses 23, starting, says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Continues a few verses later, verses 30 to 32. says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. God is pleading with his people to repent, cast away their sins. He desperately did not want them to die. Why will you die? Kept holding out the offer of life to his fallen people. So turn and live. He was willing to judge. He had to judge. But he much, much preferred bestowing life. When we talk about the wrath that God poured out on the Canaanites and others, we have to stop and consider that we're not much better, if at all, as a culture, or as people. Greg Kukul talks about our culture and says, in a certain sense, the lesson of the conquest is a simple one, that God punishes evil. For many in our culture, though, the Canaanite offenses simply are not offensive. Divination, sexual adventure, adultery, homosexuality, transvestitism, all evil? Please. Virtually every crime on the Canaanite rap sheet is common fare in our communities or can be found one click away on the internet. Children are not being torched on church altars, to be sure, but thousands die daily in abortion clinics, sacrificed literally to the gods of choice and convenience. Though we may see others as worse sinners than us, it's not true in God's sight. That doesn't matter to God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve God's wrath. None of us deserve his mercy. And yet, we receive his mercy in countless ways. Nowhere is this seen more clearly clearly than in the cross of Christ. 
Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Fancy word that means the appeasement of God's wrath for our sins. When Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, being crushed for us, we believe he bore the wrath of God in our stead. And it is his loving sacrifice for us that will save us from facing the wrath of God one day. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have been justified by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Because he lives again, he can still offer us new life today, and he is still pleading, so turn and live. It is the same message today as it was so many centuries ago. God is holy. God will judge. But God is patient. And God is love. His wrath will come one day. It will. But we can be saved from his wrath through Jesus. Have you turned from your sins, in order to live. God will plead for you to do it today. He doesn't want you to face his wrath. This is not his desire. He wants to show you mercy and love and give you life. If you'd like to talk more about this, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Please come talk to me as soon as we conclude. I'd be happy to pray with you or discuss further questions that you have. This topic can be quite extensive. I know I've gone over time trying to explain it. But I did want to make sure I left you with some further resources that you can look into if this is confusing to you still or if you want to study it more. Knowing God by J.I. Packer has a full chapter devoted to the wrath of God. It's a classic book for having a balanced view for God and who he is. Knowing God for who he has revealed himself to be. I'm going to give you a couple links to some great articles online as well. Verses from the apologist Greg Kukul on Stand to Reason. And maybe after the service, Becca, just put this back up on the screen so people can write it down if they need to. Uh, but the first is Greg Kukul. There's a link there. Second is from the blogger Justin Taylor at the Gospel Coalition. There's a couple links there that will help you understand these. Finally, for an in-depth book that entirely focuses on this topic, I'd recommend Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copen. And Copen addresses probably every aspect of whether God is moral or not. Talking about ethnic cleansing or harsh or weird laws to us or slavery and so on. To include... Today may have answered your questions or it may not have completely satisfied them. But when we don't fully understand God's ways, we are instructed to trust his goodness. When we don't fully understand, we are instructed to trust him regardless. For his thoughts 
are not our thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways. I promise you that one day we will understand. And we will join in the song of Moses in heaven. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The old hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, so beautifully puts it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see how desperate our sins are before you. Help us to understand. We don't fully understand here, so we need your spirit to open our hearts. And as we see that, God, I pray that you would show us even so much more bountifully how great your grace for us is. Displayed in Jesus, who took our sin and bore our wrath in our place. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.